Hi, I'm Tyler Salty, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scriptures and turn with me to the gospel according to John chapter 15, first 11 verses. True preaching brings with it the conviction of sin. And that is not a job that I can do. That is a job that only the Holy Spirit can do. So we'll read God's word. We'll pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us to make us more like Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me as I read John 15, the first 11 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to be upon us today so that we might be made more like Jesus and so that we might continue to embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. may be seated. In a day and age when we are a people who are more connected than ever, with all the levels of communication that we have with other people, we're able to stay connected. We're afforded the advantages of being involved in the lives of others through technology. When we can hardly go an hour without looking at our phone. Why is it? that we are a people who feel so disconnected, so distant, so lonely, so despairing, and so depressed. 
Have we done something good or have we done something detrimental to ourselves? Have we helped ourselves and the predicament of our human nature or have we made it more difficult for ourselves and have we exacerbated the problems of our human nature and our human hearts? And why in our efforts to connect people more and more have we left people worse off? And why do we keep on doubling down, continue to try, continuing to try to connect people in more and more ways if we're only actually really disconnecting them from others, disconnecting them from reality, and ultimately disconnecting them from the truth? There is something that God has put in the human heart where we need to be connected to other people. It's not good that man should be alone. It's not good indeed. But what about the church? Do we need to be connected? Can we go it alone as Christians? Do we, like the world, think that we are more connected than ever, but all the while we feel so disconnected and distant? And why is this? Is it not because we look at all the wrong things to try to find that connection? Ask someone what they like about the church, and you might get a myriad of reasons as to what they enjoy. I like the music. I like the kids' ministry. I like the people. I have a lot in common with them. They are friendly. I like the location. I like the facilities. I like the preaching. I like the events. I like the outreach. Would you ever hear, though, anyone say, wow, what I love about that church is they are connected to Christ. They want to glorify and magnify God through Jesus Christ. Whatever a group of people may have that we might like, if they are not connected to Christ, they are not a church. And more specifically, if they are not connected to Christ, they're not even Christians. <laughs> a church is only a church because it is inseparably connected to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this truth comes from the lips of our Lord himself. These verses at the beginning of John 15 are the heartbeat of Jesus' farewell discourse. So Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's about to die. He's about to rise again from the dead. He's about to set, ascend into heaven. He's about to leave. And in the middle of his final farewell to his disciples, he gives them these verses, these truths, to prepare them for when they might feel disconnected because he is no longer with them, how they are going to remain connected to him even though he's gone. Because his departure from them does not mean they will be disconnected, but rather their connectedness to him will continue to flourish and will continue to grow. Jesus isn't saying in these verses, be connected to me, but guess what? You're only going to be connected to me for about a few more days, and then I'm going to be gone, and then you've got to find something else to be connected to or connected in, or, or then just connect with one another. 
The truths that Jesus is giving to his disciples here and the truths that he's also giving to us remind us that all disciples of Jesus Christ will be connected to him. And that our connectedness to him will mean flourishing and growth in our lives. Our connectedness to him will be the answer to the longing and the desire of our heart. This connectedness to Christ is called an abiding in Christ by our Savior. So what are the results of abiding in Christ from these verses? There's an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that for results, but this morning we'll only get through two. Thank you for your patience. Number one, abide in Christ to be cared for by the Father. Abide in Christ to be cared for by the Father. John 15 provides us with the last of seven I am statements recorded in the book of John. With each of those I am statements, there is a declaration of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan. But more than that, there is a declaration that Jesus is God. Jesus is not merely giving us a nice picture of who he is. He is boldly and authoritatively declaring his divinity as God in the flesh. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am God. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God to be believed in. I am the God to be trusted. I am the God to be followed. I am the God to give your allegiance to. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, truly man and at the same time truly God. And Jesus in this verse declares in the revelation of himself, I am the true vine. Why does Jesus say such a thing? I am the true vine. Why does he begin with this metaphor? Did he think, you know, I really like the picture of a vine and maybe what it stands for and what it represents, so I think I'll use that analogy from common everyday thing in agriculture and I'll apply it to myself. Maybe we would marvel at Jesus' understanding of nature and the world and see his genius in using that metaphor to explain himself. But perhaps Jesus is doing something better than that. He's using imagery that's already been used in the Old Testament, and he's giving us the proper interpretation of that imagery in light of himself. Jesus is saying, I'm taking something that you already know, and I'm showing you how what you know to be true is really about me. The vine and vineyard imagery would not have been foreign to the Jew. They would know it to be spread all over the Old Testament. And one particular section of Scripture that helps us is Isaiah 7. So if you have your Bibles, keep your finger in John 15. Just flip over to Isaiah 7 for a moment. In Isaiah 7, we see this imagery. I'm sorry, Isaiah 5. 
Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, and they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, are, ple- are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. If you were to look in the Old Testament, you would see this consistent, consistent imagery of the vine and the vineyard in that the vine represents Israel. So what, are, what is Jesus saying by declaring that he is the true vine. He is saying he himself is the true Israel. That is, he is the real Israel. He is the genuine Israel. He himself is the fulfillment of Israel. But what was Israel's problem? Israel in the past had always failed. They had always disobeyed God. They were supposed to yield good grapes, sweet grapes, but they yielded wild grapes, good-for-nothing grapes, sour and stinky grapes. They forsook the Lord and turned to worthless idols and worshiped them instead of Yahweh. This is the Israel who Yahweh had called his firstborn son in Exodus 4. But his firstborn son had turned away from him. But Jesus saying he is the true vine, is to say he is not like that Israel that failed. He is not like that Israel who disobeyed God. He is not the son who forsook his father. He is the righteous son who always obeys his father and will always then yield fruit. He is the true son, and he has a father who is the vine dresser. Just as God was the vine dresser in Isaiah chapter 5, so he's still the vine dresser here in John 15, 1. And while Christ heralds these great and precious truths about himself, he begins with the action of his, vine dre- of his father, the vine dresser. So what do we see the vine dresser doing? There are these branches that are coming out of the vine, but there is a problem. They're not bearing any fruit. So the vine dresser rightly and justly removes the branches. He takes them away or he cuts them off. Who are these branches? Who are these branches that are not bearing any fruit? There might be some difficulty in trying to press this metaphor too far. We might get hung up with the words, in me. Do you see that there? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Could these be believers who lose their salvation? No. 
we know that true believers never lose their salvation. They will persevere to the end. I believe the purpose of this verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. There might be some who profess Christ. There might be some who say they believe in Christ. There might even be those like in John chapter 2 who believed in his name, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man, perhaps so close to Christ, but not connected to Christ. And why? Because if they were connected to Christ, they would have produced fruit. And I believe that this verse implies the devastating result of being taken away or cut off. In Isaiah 5, the vine dresser does so much to ensure that the vine produces fruit, but here this vine produces no fruit, and so it is removed. It is taken away. It is cut off. And I wonder, dear brother and sister, if sometimes we fear more being cut off from the world than being cut off from God. If we are branches who are bearing fruit, we might be cut off from this world, but we will not be cut off from Christ. But there's another branch, isn't there? Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And what a contrast a branch not bearing fruit, a branch bearing fruit. And I want us just to think here for a moment back in Isaiah 5. Notice there that the vine dresser had done so much. He had done so much to ensure that the vine would produce fruit. He dug out the vineyard, he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. He hewed out a wine vat. And then he looked and he waited. He waited it for it to produce grapes. But it produced only wild grapes. God had lavished his grace and more grace and more grace upon his people. What more could he do for his vineyard? Do you see that there? What more was there to do for my vineyard? Here is my vineyard, Israel. I've done everything that I can for them. I've lavished my grace upon them time and time and time again. And yet they only produced wild grapes. They utterly spurned the grace of God that he had lavished upon them. How much more than now that God lavishes his grace upon the people through the true vine, Jesus Christ. And yet there would be those who would live without bearing any fruit from the vine, as if to live like grace has never touched them. And to live as if grace has never touched you is to bear no fruit, even though everything has been afforded to you to bear fruit. The blame for not bearing fruit does not fall upon the vine or the vine dresser. The blame lies solely on the barren branch. And so the hand of the Lord goes out against unfruitful people to take them away and cut them off. 
it is impossible to think that any branch that bears no fruit can long be considered part of Christ. But the branches that do bear fruit, these people bearing fruit in their lives, this evidence that they are connected to the vine, that they are connected to Christ, they are receiving the life-giving nutrients and strength from the vine, and therefore they produce fruit. We derive our life from Christ, and then Christ will produce fruit through us. So branches that belong to Christ will bear fruit. And so will be pruned. And this comes from the loving hand of God the Father who is our vine dresser. God would be a lazy and slack vine dresser if he failed to prune his fruitful branches. The Father lovingly, tenderly removes what is necessary from the branch. It might be difficult, it might be painful, it might hurt, but it is for our good so that we can produce more fruit. Would we dare tell God what he should or shouldn't do? If branches that are in the vine produce fruit, then they will be pruned, and how dare we say to the vine dresser, why are you doing this to me? Why are you pruning me? Why does this hurt? Why am I going through this difficulty? Would we doubt his pruning or his discipline? Hebrews 12 says the sovereign hand of the Lord in our life disciplines us because he loves us and his disciplining is evidence that we are his children. While it is painful rather than pleasant, it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do we recognize the care of our Father as those who are branches in Jesus Christ? Are we willing to accept that? Are we willing to embrace that? Are we willing to say, that is necessary in my life? If God didn't prune his fruitful branches, he wouldn't be a faithful vine dresser. And he does it so that they may bear more fruit. Would not that be our desire? I desire to bear more fruit in my life. And then, in verse 3, we have this odd sentence. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What does that have to do with anything? Jesus has been talking about vines and branches and vine dressers. And now why all of a sudden does he say, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. One thing we can't see here in our English translations is that there's this word play on pruning and cleaning. So pruning and cleaning, Jesus is using a play on words very closely connected. And so Jesus saying that you are clean, they are clean because of the word that he has spoken to them. They are those who are connected to Christ. They are those who are experiencing the pruning of 
the Father in their lives. They are those who will continue to progress spiritually in their walk of faith with him. It's what Jesus said similarly back in John 13. If you just turn back in your Bibles, uh, a few chapters there. Jesus is going around washing his disciples' feet, right? And Peter tries to deny Jesus there in 13.8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus, give me a bath then, <laughs> right? Don't just stop with my feet, like wash everything. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, you are completely clean. There is this need, yes, for this foot washing to show that you have this part in me, this share in me. But you already are completely clean. You are my disciples. You are a follower of me. You put your faith in me. You are completely clean. And look at what it says then back in John 15. Why are they clean? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. It's by the cleansing power of the word that Jesus spoke to them. How did Jesus give life to his disciples? Through his word. So faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. This statement, this statement shows us the necessity of the word of God and its cleansing power in the life of believers and all of those who are saved. Jesus tells them, you are clean. You are already in the vine because of the word that I have spoken to you. It has already cleansed you. So be ready for your pruning. Those who have the life of the word of Christ pulsating through their veins, knowing their cleansing power, will continue in their progress in sanctification. And this verse of Jesus saying that his disciples are already clean reminds me of something that is said in Jeremiah chapter 2. If you want to look at that, it might be helpful. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. You back up to verse 20, Jeremiah 2. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. God was saying to Israel, I planted you as choice vines, yet you forsook me. You worship these false idols. And now you can try to wash yourself up. You can try to remove your stain. You can use as much soap as you want. But guess what? It's never going to remove the guilt that is upon you, for you forsook me, says the Lord. But now here is something different. Here is Jesus, who is 
cleansing his people. Why? Because he is the true vine. He is the one who can remove that stain. He is the one that removes that guilt. He is the one who makes his people completely clean because of the word that he has spoken and because he fulfills the word that he speaks. There are some who can be so close to Christ but are not connected to him like Judas. But those who are connected to Christ know the loving care of the Father and know what it is to be cleansed and clean of their sin and guilt. What tender and loving care from the Father to give us this vine to remove our sin and our guilt. Number two, abide in Christ to bear much fruit. Abide in Christ to bear much fruit. Coming to verse four, we meet a word we probably do not use too much in our day-to-day vocabulary, abide. Do you use that this week? Abide? Comes in the form of a command. Abide in Christ. You must abide in Christ. But what does it mean to abide in Christ? Abide could also be translated remain or stay or dwell. If you want to use perhaps a more unrefined word from our vocabulary, we might say marinate. The question becomes, how do we do this? How do I abide in Christ? Abiding in Christ is a continuous dependence upon Him. It is a constant reliance upon Him, a persistent spiritual drinking of His life, all of which is necessary for spiritual uh, fruitfulness. Here is Jesus calling His disciples, calling us to hold fast to the intimate fellowship they enjoy with Him that is based on the assurance that He is faithful to that relationship. And this relationship is so close, it's described as a mutual indwelling. Abide in me and I in you. We are called to abide in Christ at the same time receiving the promise that He will abide in us. What does this abiding look like? Perhaps we should go to Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Such an abiding relationship between us and Christ and he with us results in bearing fruit. A branch by itself cannot and will not bear fruit. Branches living in isolation from the vine will never produce any fruit whatsoever. And so Jesus is explicit here. He is the vine and we are the branches. If we are in the vine and he in us, the result will be lives that bear much fruit. The next question we need to answer, what does it mean to bear fruit? Is bearing fruit the number of converts we have shared the gospel with? No. Fruitfulness is often relayed to Christ-like character qualities. Some even define fruitfulness as Christ-likeness. I think that is much closer, but I would even expand it to say this. 
This fruitfulness is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine driven by faith. It's the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine driven by faith. What does that mean? My faith is in the vine. My faith is in Jesus Christ. And because my faith is in him, I'm going to persevere in depending upon him. And as I do that, there's going to be an outflow of my life. And this outcome embraces all of the believer's life and the product of our witness. It's our union with Christ that makes us fruitful. And abiding in Christ and he in us, this product of fruit in our lives does not come from within us. It comes from without. It comes from the vine. It's the opposite of what the world says, isn't it? What does the world say? Dig deep inside yourself. You have it within yourself to do whatever you want. I knew you had it in you. No, you didn't. We don't need to unlock something within ourselves to be free. We need to look to someone outside us who will free us. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And so since this producing of fruit comes from without, comes from the vine, and since our capacity to bear fruit comes from him, the yield is certain. If our fruitfulness is dependent upon what is inside us, the yield will never be certain. But because the fruitfulness is coming from Jesus Christ and our being connected to him, guess what? We are freed from the anxiety of failure. We are freed and made more capable of bearing fruit. Brother and sister, no longer consider your own achievements as evidence of your fruitfulness. No longer look to yourself as the final determiner of your fruitfulness. No longer live as if everything depends upon you because everything depends upon Him, the true vine, His work in our lives. Do not look to yourself because apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Look at those words. End of verse 5. For apart from me, you can do... What's the word? Do you believe that? Nothing? Maybe we should qualify it. Can do something? A little bit? Apart from him? Do not many people who are apart from Christ do many things? Are you saying that these are doing nothing? Yes. In Christ's economy, they are doing nothing because it has no eternal value, no spiritual value. It does not, will not, and cannot last. And woe to us who think that we can do something apart from Christ. Woe to those in the church who think that they have done something apart from Christ. 
Do we ever say, look at so-and-so and how much they have done for the church? But what have they done? While externally looking good, it has been utter nothingness in the eyes of Christ because they did it all apart from Him. Many will bring their resumes of religiosity to Christ in the end, but all he will see is a blank page, and he will declare to those people, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In fact, let's look at it. John, Mark, uh, Matthew 7. Matthew 7. 21, 22, 23. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven... But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? They must be Christians. Look at what they've done. It's amazing. It's astounding. And I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They look spiritual. They posed as significant servants. They had the appearance of godliness, but they were denying its power. They professed to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Why? Because it was all done apart from Christ. Maybe they said what they were doing was for Christ. Maybe they claimed that it was on behalf of Christ. Maybe they said they were doing it before Christ. Maybe they postured to say that they were doing it under Christ, in submission to Christ. Maybe they tried to baptize their actions by saying that it was all done unto Christ, but all of these things are never enough if it is not done in Christ. People can do good things. They can give you the shirt off their back. They can travel long distances to do good. They can give up their time, their money, their blood, sweat, and tears. But apart from Christ, what is it for? It's for nothing. They've done nothing. They are still spiritually bankrupt. They have borne no fruit. What is it in your life that you have sought to do apart from Christ? And I think that's why Jesus says what he says here, because I think, I think we can deceive ourselves and fall into the trap of thinking that perhaps we can do some things apart from him. So what is it that you thought perhaps you could accomplish apart from him and still be fruitful? And if you think to yourself, hmm, I don't know if I've ever done anything apart from Christ. You need to check everything. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Christ is giving these warnings because we are prone to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can do something apart from Him, that we can make our own way. But there are two results, aren't there? The branches that experience judgment and the branches that pray. The branches that bear no fruit. The branches that do not abide in Him are thrown away. They wither. They're gathered. They're thrown to the fire. They're burned. They experience the judgment of God. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
I want to be that branch, right? I want to be that branch that abides in Christ. And look at what, look at how Jesus changes this around now. If you abide in me and I in you, it's not what he says, is it? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, me abiding in you is the same as my words abiding in you. I think what Jesus is saying there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When the word of Christ is in us, Christ is in us. And what happens when the word of Christ is in us? We're captivated by his word. We love his word. We can't get enough of his word. We are so bound to his word that then it comes out of our lives and even how we pray. Let us not think that this is blank check Christianity. Ask whatever you wish. Well, guess what? If Christ is abiding in you and his words are abiding in you, what do we wish for? What do we ask for? His word so conforms our mind and our will and our affections and our desires to his mind and his will and his affection and his desires that we ask for his will to be done. We ask for him to have his way in our lives. We ask that he would might be glorified above everything Our desires become his desires. And what we ask for is for his will to be done in the earth. We do not ask for these things out of selfish ambition or greed. And look at this last part. We'll end here. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I think those last two things go hand in hand. So you bear much fruit, it proves that you are Christ's disciples. Those aren't two separate things. You bear fruit, you're proving that you're Christ's disciples. And it's by these that God the Father is glorified. But more particularly, it is Christ glorifying his Father through his union with us, whereby he causes us to be fruitful. Bearing fruit shows we are truly disciples of Jesus, and Jesus glorifies his Father through fruitful believers. When we are fruitful branches, it's Christ glorifying the Father through what he's doing in us. And amazing how all of this bearing fruit does not put the focus on us. All of this bearing fruit puts the focus on God. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them where they should be, where they must be, and where they must remain on glorifying God. Let's pray. Take a moment and meditate on the word that you've heard this morning from God's word. Maybe you need to take some time to think if you sought to do anything apart from Christ. Maybe you need to examine what you have done, what you are doing. 
maybe you need to pray, Lord, may I do nothing apart from you. Maybe you're one here today who says, I'm not bearing any fruit because I'm not in Jesus Christ. I don't know him. I don't love him. My faith is not in him. The good news is today is the day of salvation. You can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can repent of your sins. You can cast yourself upon him. Cry out for him to save you and he will save you. Believe he died on the cross to save you from your sins. Believe that his death forgives you of your sins. Believe that he rose again from the dead to give you the gift of eternal life. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He will save you. Father, we want to be those people who bear much fruit because we abide in Christ and he in us. Oh, Lord, forgive us if there's ever any time that we think we could do something apart from Christ. Let us stop looking to our own achievements. Let us stop fearing failure. Let us look again to the true vine. Let us depend upon his life. And so let us bear much fruit. Prune us, Father, that we might bear more fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.